This is Secrets to Win Big, your roadmap to sustained growth. Brought to you by Arjun Sen, founder and CEO of Zen Mango, top brand growth driver and a former Fortune 500 executive who has been called one of the most marketing intelligent minds in the business. Find him at zenmango.com. And now, here's your host, Arjun Sen. Welcome to Secrets to Win Big. This is Arjun Sen, and it's truly a pleasure. You know, in life, I find that high-impact leaders fall in three categories. One are leaders who make an amazing impact on a business. Then there are individuals who are working very hard, especially in fields of healthcare and everywhere, especially now it's very important where they put their lives at risk to save people today. Then there are a third category of brilliant leaders who really take us to the next level, who dedicate their lives to building, create opportunities, building for the future to change humanity. And today I'm really fortunate to talk to David Williams, who has had and will continue to have that part I'm very excited about is what is ahead and we'll talk about a career where he has made impact in the lives of others through incredible nonprofits. So David Williams is the CEO of Shelters to Shutters, a national 501c3 organization that transitions individuals and families to homelessness, from homelessness to economic self-sufficiency by educating and engaging real estate industry to provide employment and housing opportunities. And you know, to be more, I read about David, it really fascinated. It's not just one thing, it's the whole during his 30 years of experience leading to prominent nonprofit organizations. He has served in key roles in some of the nation's most respected nonprofits with his most recent position as president and CEO of Genesis Works, a national youth career readiness program. Previous to Genesis Works, he served as president and CEO of Make-A-Wish America. Under Williams' leadership, the organization realized record growth with national office annual revenue more than quadrupling over that period. He spent 11 years at Habitat for Humanity International, rising to executive VP and chief operating officer after starting his nonprofit career as executive director of the Houston Food Bank. David, welcome and truly an honor to have this conversation with you. Thank you, Arjun. It's nice to be here. So David, I just want to take this conversation literally on a different direction. You must have been answering questions on each of these foundations. I want to know more about you. You know, as I look at the 30 plus years of making an impact in the life of millions in your career, leading major nonprofit organizations, what made you choose this career of making an impact in others' lives? Yeah, so Arjun, for me, it was, um, uh, it, it was really a response to, uh, uh, to my faith. Uh, so when I was in college, I, um, uh, in, in my case, I, I became a, a, a Christian. And as I looked at the scriptures, I was really shocked by uh, God's concern for uh, people who were poor, who were disabled, who were people that were not valued uh, kind of by the world. And, uh, and, and also really struck by uh, to those who have much, much is required. And as I looked at my life, 
I realized that I had been uh, I had been given a lot. I had been raised in a uh, in a wonderful family. I'd been educated. I had never worried about uh, whether I was going to have a meal or a roof over my head, and uh, and so I I just really became um, convinced that I I had a responsibility to uh, to to try to make the world that I lived in a better place, and so. So I really did that in college and uh, in, in my early work life through uh, volunteering. Uh, I originally, after graduating from college, went to work for Shell Oil Company and finance. And, uh, but I really found that I've, uh, I, I received greater joy and I thought much more about the organizations I was volunteering with uh, than, in my, than in my work. And so food banks were getting started across the country in the late 70s, early 1980s, and they came to Houston and I, uh, I got involved as a, I was on a committee to raise money and then I was on the board and then they were looking for an executive director. And I thought, how, how wonderful to be able to not just devote uh, a few hours a day or a week uh, with this, but to actually put my whole, my, my whole being into it. And so I, uh, so I became the director of the Houston Food Bank and, and uh, just, just kind of fell in love with that type of work. Love that. So are there any individuals in your family who was an inspiration in this journey of a young man going to college, already had figured out what he wanted to do? Well, you know, I, I was actually inspired by a couple, uh, couple people in, in an interesting type of way. My, my grandfather on my mother's side was, uh, I'm, I'm half Italian. So he, he was a coal miner and, uh, and he lost a leg in the, in the mines. He died of black lung. Uh, and when I thought about what he did for a living to put food on the table, I was pretty, um, I was kind of pretty humbled by it. My other grandfather was a milkman. And, uh, and so, and we were actually on his route. So he would pick me up and I would get to help him. And I think if somebody had come along and said, hey, you could have this job for the rest of your life, I think I would take it because he was, he was outside and he would meet with people. The interesting thing about my grandfather uh, was that he was a wonderful grandfather, but he was a terrible milkman because a lot of people that he had on his roof in his route were, were elderly. They were, they were homebound. And so often he was the only person they would see uh, in a day. And so he would actually... Uh, sit down and have a cup of coffee with them. And so while everybody else was getting done by the early afternoon, he, his, his truck would roll in more towards the end of the day. But I learned a valuable lesson from, from both those gentlemen. One, the value of hard work and, and, and kind of the grit that my one grandfather had in terms of working in just really a tough situation. And yet, you know, just, just working very, very hard. And then with my other grandfather, the value of listening. And, um, and as I've thought about my jobs over the years, I actually end up doing a lot of listening. Uh, and I think that's one of the areas that really effective leaders um, come to realize that uh, a lot of times the problems and the solutions are in front of you. Uh, you just have to pay attention to, you know, your, your employees, your customers, uh, your vendors, the, the, the people around you. And so I think those are two, those were the kind of the two, 
the two individuals that really, I think in, a, in an interesting way inspired, inspired me and, uh, and helped kind of mold me into uh, uh, the person I am today. I love that. And especially about your grandfather listening, you know, what did make me realize that every person matters and we show how much we care by giving them the gift that of time. You and I have the same wealth, 24 hours, and that was brilliant. And I also love the thing that you talked about is for business leaders taking that whole thing forward is problems and solutions. Both are right in front of you. All we have to do is pause, listen, and we get those. You know, David, as I'm listening to you, not only you are in, you have an inspiration that is faith-based, which is very strong, you have a heart which is very committed, but also there is a business person who knows how to make an impact at the highest level because quadrupling the revenue over a period of time is not, not revenue, the annual revenue of the success and the success at an organization as big as Make-A-Wish America is not easy. So what does it take for any nonprofit to be at the highest level of success? And of course, I would love your definition of success before you answer the question. Yeah, so I think, you know, first of all, the definition of success for me would be um, for a nonprofit organization is that you're, you know, that there's a, we, we typically think of an ROI, you know, kind of a return on investment. Well, you know, people are investing their time and their financial resources in your nonprofit organization. So ROI is just as important a concept in a nonprofit as a for-profit. And so I think that uh, you have to have metrics that show. So whether we're with shelters to shutters, we're putting people into jobs and apartments and we're able to, you know, help so many people for a certain amount of money. And same thing with Make-A-Wish, same thing with Habitat. With the food bank, we talked about how for every dollar donated, we were able to distribute $25 worth of food. So you have to be able to demonstrate that, that um, the value proposition of why it's important to invest in this nonprofit organization. There are 2 million charities in the United States alone. So there are a lot of organizations out there doing good work. You've gotta be able to demonstrate uh, that your investment and even getting it down to the personal level, why your donation, why your investment uh, is important and what it's gonna do. So I think that's the first measure of success. I think the second has to do with leading people and creating a culture where, um, where it's a, it's a joyful and productive place to be. Um, there are a lot of great missions out there. And yet the truth be told, some of them are terrible places to work you know, because you know people don't cooperate. People have their own agendas. That happens in the nonprofit world, just like in the for-profit world. And, and I view success that, that I want people that I've worked with um, to feel like that you know, that we were able to create a culture that, um, that was positive and that was affirming. And, and again, that was, you know, we don't use the word joyful a lot, but that, but, but that is, is joyful. Uh, this is hard work and nonprofit work is, uh, is even in some cases harder, depending on, on the mission of the organization. And so I think that, that that's important uh, because, and it's even from a self-interest standpoint, I think if you have a great culture, you'll get the best out of people. I think it works to the advantage of the organization. Uh, and so those are the two 
measures of success that I think are are, uh, are, are the most important. Love that. Uh, you know, years back, we were working with the branding for America's Road Home who help uh, homeless people into homes. And one of the challenges the company was having was people were making pledges. And once there's a pledge and there's some donations, then the house is started to build and they commit these six people will move in. And then at times the pledges were not happening. And the big thing, what we realized was as the pledges made, we right away helped them put the faces of the six people. So tomorrow, let's say if Arjun is falling behind, David can just send an email by saying, Arjun, I know you're falling behind, but what do I tell these six men and women who are ready right. to move on July 7th? Because now it's getting delayed. And what we found was putting a face and an ROI behind it really, really helped. So as you talked about, working for nonprofits is hard work. What are some of the biggest challenges you have faced that you're comfortable sharing with and more importantly, how did you overcome those challenges? Yeah, so uh, starting right off the bat, you know, I was I was 23 years old when I became the executive director of the Houston Food Bank. And prior to my joining, they had had three executive directors in a year. They had been kicked out of the National Food Bank Association, and they had been shut down by the city of Houston Health Department. And we didn't have any food, and we didn't have any money. Other than that, it was uh, it was awesome. So. <laughs> So honestly, the very first uh, no food, challenge, no. and this was, yeah, it was, we, we would put, well, I had a volunteer bookkeeper, and we would put the bills in three piles, uh, the bills that we could pay, the bills that he and I would put on our credit cards just as a kind of a temporary loan, and then the other bills that we couldn't pay. I mean, it was, it was challenging. So the biggest challenge there was survival. It was, can we make it through this year? And you know, start building momentum to to be a to be a viable organization. And it was I, I enlisted two of my uh, college friends, and we lived in an apartment uh, together. And that's what we did for a year uh, was to try to get the organization uh, sustainable. So that was that was a big one. It was also challenging because I had never managed people before. I didn't know anything about the food industry about distribution, about warehousing, about hunger in Houston. I mean, I just didn't, you know, I, I, I'd never reported to a board. Uh, I'd never been a public spokesperson to know how to speak in public. I mean, there were, so, so on top of the challenge was, uh, was the fact that I was, I was probably the least qualified person for this, uh, for this role. But I really asked myself a question, and I think people should ask themselves a question. And that is, uh, what would I do if, um, uh, if I failed and, you know, and the result and, and the answer was, you know, I could fail, I might fail, but, you know, if that happened, I could go back to being a mediocre accountant and, uh, but at least I would know that I, I, I gave it my best shot. And, um, and so th I think that was the first one. I think the second one, Habitat for Humanity, I went from running a local food bank to running a nonprofit organization that operated in 48 countries around the world. The only time I'd been outside the United States was uh, on my honeymoon. We went to Cancun. And so I didn't know anything about community development, about the greater world around me outside the United States. I didn't know anything about house building or community development. And I was reporting to a founder who was probably the most charismatic uh, and dynamic individuals I had ever met. Uh, but he was a real challenge to work for. He was, he was your quintessential founder. And so 
you know, when I came on board, uh, people said that the founder had the vision and I had the nightmare because he always had a lot of ideas. And my job was to try to figure out, you know, how do we how do we execute on these things and which ones were the really were the real nuggets and which were the ones that we just needed to kind of kind of pause on and and hope he forgot, um, to be honest, uh, because he had a lot of ideas. And so that was challenging to um, it was just a challenging environment. And when we were done, we went from being in 48 countries to being in 100 countries. But the challenge was he thought we should have been in 200 countries. So it was it was this insatiable. Uh, he was driven. And so it affected the entire organization. So trying to manage that was very, very challenging. And then the third one I would just say is when I was with Make-A-Wish, uh, when I started, we had two individuals who we caught stealing, who were leading our operations in two different parts of the country. And, and the decision was whether we would prosecute. Uh, because once you prosecute, then you make it public. Mm -hmm. And once you make it public, then people will say, well, wait a second, why should I contribute to this organization when, when their leadership has stolen? And in both cases, it was, I mean, it was six figures. And we did make the decision to prosecute because I felt that just losing your job was not uh, punishment enough for somebody who's essentially stealing money from sick kids. Mm -hmm. And uh, and so we made the decision. It, it was, they were hard decisions. And we did have to deal with uh, a drop in donations in those parts of the country, but I think it was the right thing to do. Well, so I want to go back and ask you a personal question, especially on your first job, is when you were going through those moments of survival and trying to take the brand, a business to sustain, and the very fact you were putting some of the payments on your personal credit card as a short-term loan, there was very strong belief that this will work. What was the source of that belief? Oh, I, I, and, and this is where you get to the, uh, being a business person. Everybody that was involved with the food bank was, you know, really came more from a social work background. And, uh, and so coming more from a business background, you, you know, the, the original concept of a food bank was taking food that was perfectly edible in large quantities and being able to redistribute it to food pantries and soup kitchens and organizations like that on, uh, in quantities that they could handle. But mm -hmm. the, the food was, was edible, but otherwise it was getting put into a landfill. And so, first of all, it made sense to the food industry because they were able to um, uh, not spend the money to have it disposed. Uh, it was good food that was helping, uh, that was helping people. So, so it was the underlying belief that this is a concept that makes sense and it makes sense for the industry. It makes sense for the city of Houston. It, it makes sense from an environmental standpoint. It just make, it makes sense all across the board. And the only thing that's missing is we've just got to be able to present this in a way so that people understand it, have confidence in the organization and, and if we do those things, if we just do things right, then it'll catch on and we'll be able to make this a viable organization. So it was just the underlying belief that this concept just makes, it makes too much sense for it to go away. Love that. So just like we talked about the challenges, what are some of the most satisfying moments or a few memories in the journey that gets you really excited 
and inspires you forward? Yeah, so I think it, it, to put them in two broad categories, the first is uh, just when you see the fulfillment of the organization take place. So with Habitat for Humanity, when a house is dedicated and the family gets the keys to their house mm -hmm. and, and you're talking about people who never thought in their wildest dreams that they would own their own home. And, and because of the principles of Habitat, they actually helped build that home. Mm -hmm. So they were involved along with other people and, and because other people were involved, because there were volunteers and corporations and, uh, and, and other organizations that were involved in building those homes, building that person's home, it's an incredibly emotional event, as you can imagine. Um, and so to be able to see that uh, was always, was always uh, memorable and inspiring. You know, to be able to talk to a wish parent or a wish kid Mm -hmm. to have them talk about their wish and what that did for them. Any, any child that's fighting for their lives because of, of a, a life-threatening medical condition and they've been able to pull through it. Or I will tell you, talking with parents were even in the worst scenario where their child did not survive their illness. And yet for them to be able to talk about the fact that the happiest that they remember seeing their child in the last year or two or wherever, when that diagnosis took place was during that child's wish, during an experience that you had a small part of making happen. Mm -hmm. I mean, oh my goodness, it's, it's, uh, it, it's, it's amazing. And in the organization that I'm with right now, Shelters to Shutters, we, you know, we help people get into a job and get into a furnished apartment. And again, people that have been living in a shelter, people that have been living out of their cars, people that have been living with friends. Um, you know, all these are very emotional and memorable uh, experience. And it's, it's really just a privilege to, to be part of it and to, and to experience it, so. Yeah. And you know, coming from outside, when my wife, she was working for United Airlines in Denver and she would participate in the Habitat for Humanity's work I would remember when she would come back, I think her job satisfaction was at the highest that particular day. And the very fact she felt, even though it was, let's say, one millionth of the work that went into, you know, she just felt that everyone put a little love into that building. So it wasn't the physical building. It was the hearts that put together. That was such a brilliant concept. And thank you for building that. I just want to also, you know, go into a personal area of my passion is, you know, being in branding marketing. How do you tell the story, especially let's look at shelters to shutters. How do you tell the story to create excitement in the community, among donors and among, you know, just the community in general? Yeah, you, you know, and it's a great, it's a great question. And it's the challenge that I think every nonprofit organization has you can talk, numbers are important, metrics are important, impact is important. But at the end of the day, people want to people want to hear a story. And so um, and so I think the good news on the uh, for a nonprofit organization is that you know these are these are real stories and they're compelling stories. Mm -hmm. And um, and so you know, I, I think the challenge is to be able to present it in a way where you're you know, you don't have to you don't have to embellish or over dramatize um, 
the, the condition in which people are in. I think it's important to be truthful. Uh, I think it's also important to be dignified mm-hmm. in, in how you tell someone's, uh, someone's situation. And then, and then, of course, to be able to talk about the impact that the mission has. But then I think that, you know, sometimes the missing piece is to also be able to tell the story of all the people that were involved in making it happen. Because I think that's some of the most exciting part. Just like your wife was a, a, was a part of, mm-hmm. of that. But that's an important part mm-hmm. because, you know, we live in a very divided country, very divided world these days. And we focus so much more on what divides us than, than what unites us. And, and I just think it's one of the most beautiful aspects to a story when you can have rich and poor and black and white and government and private sector. And I mean, you name the, mm-hmm. you know, people of different faiths, people of different political parties, people, all these, you know, we so focus on the differences and yet we can come together and agree that, you know, that family that, that lives in that house that your wife was part of building, that they should be able to live in a simple, decent home mm-hmm. in this country that's one of the wealthiest countries that's ever existed in the history of mankind. Uh, and to play a part in that is just, it's, it's a beautiful thing. And so I think, that's, I think that's an important part as well, is to show how we all come together to be able to make these things happen. And, you know, as you're talking about, I really love you addressing the divisions that we have in the society. And that's the part where I think the name, the word humanity in the name is so important because somehow when people get into the boundary of that building, we become one because it's the same cause that connects all of us and we somehow forget all our differences literally. That's right. And that's the part where, as you were talking, I really felt that that brings us back into the faith of humanity. And one of the things, again, I think this is a big learning for me from you. When we do work on this particular area, we try to answer three questions for any nonprofit is why this nonprofit? Why me? Why now? And I'll give you a tiny example was we were working with this uh, organization who is putting their effort into ending human trafficking. And their tagline was very corporate. And as we started going through what we understand was, like for example, and this is the story I told all the board members first and then the group was like, David, this morning you woke up, let's say you woke up at six and the alarm went on, you had a freedom to press the snooze button to wake up at 6.15. You have the freedom at that point to choose whether you want a coffee, tea, or milk, or just go for a run. You have the choice to call family members, like you have the choice. But then there are people who will wake up today who do not have the basic choice. So what will we do? Let's help them live life free. And that became the tagline. And you know, that's what, what we are also learning a lot is people today are very impatient. You really have to connect, as you said, is don't over-dramatize, but get through that why me, why now is so important. So David, I want to go into a little bit that as we look at all this, we have talked about a lot of amazing past accomplishments. I love the way you've connected that to leadership. 
And I already think I have a title for this podcast, which is Find Greater Joy, because I really think that that's what defines you, because, you know, that's... So what is ahead, you know? So somebody like you is always a few steps ahead. So where are you taking shelters for shutters? What's, you know, what will, what all does David want to accomplish in life? Yeah, so, um, so I'm excited about shelters to shutters from the standpoint that it's, um, you know, it, it's basically a startup. And so our goal, we're in five cities uh, right now. And uh, our goal is to go into five cities a year over the next five years so that, you know, we'd be in 30 cities. Um, and, you know, honestly, I don't know if that's too aggressive or not aggressive enough. And, um, and so I, I guess we'll, uh, we'll find out, but we are, uh, we just made the decision. We just had a donor in Orlando, Florida, uh, fund our operation going there. We're probably going to be going into Columbus, Ohio and Phoenix and Denver in uh, Dallas very soon. So it's uh, so my my hope and my goal is that we're able to take um, what I think is just a, a wonderful idea of, uh, of, you know, if somebody's situationally homeless, they typically have need for housing and a job. Uh, there are a lot of organizations that provide one or the other. There are very few that provide both at the same time. And we do. And I think that's really unique. And I think we're providing great, a great solution to the multifamily industry because we place them in apartments in, um, um, on terms they can afford to pay and into entry-level jobs. And so I think that as the industry learns more about what we do and how we do it, uh, we're going to be able to expand. And, you know, there's no reason why this can't be in every major city uh, across the country. And, and there's no reason why we shouldn't think about outside this country at some point in time. So I, you know, I've been, I've been fortunate to be part of big organizations like Habitat for Humanity, like the Make-A-Wish Foundation. Uh, I, I am loving the fact of being in part of something small that's not well-known, uh, that's more of a startup uh, and being able to, uh, see how we can make it grow and have more of an impact. Brilliant. And I also love the fact that not only you're putting them in the house, you're also giving them all the tools to have Correct. the respect where they work hard, contribute to our society and right. come back very proudly with that paycheck to sustain that life. That sustaining is such a brilliant idea. Exactly. So now let's make the conversation very personal, Dave. Let's say you walk into a coffee shop or a bar and you meet, you're greeted by two individuals and you think you know both of them. One is David, 16 years old. One is David, 100 years old. <laughs> and of course, you are there. So what would that conversation be that day? Wow. Well, you know, I think the conversations of a 16-year-old would be, uh, if, I, if I were giving advice, uh, to the 16 year old, I, I would, I would say, um, listen, stop, stop, stop worrying about your future. Uh, continue to do everything you're doing, everything you know how to do, um, in terms of figuring out what, where life is going to take you. Um, and, uh, you know, I think it would be some, some reassurance because when I was young, I did not, I, it, it's something that I thought about a lot. Mm -hmm. And I, 
uh, and I and and again, I prayed about it a lot. And uh, but and and praying about it is good. Worrying about it is not. And so I I think I I, I wasted a lot of time worrying about the future. Um, and the, the the I guess the conversation with a hundred year old would be, um, you know, how how uh, how did I do? How how did this? Uh, I just finished an interesting book um, called Gun Lab, and uh, and I, I would recommend it. And I don't know if you know or our listeners know what a gun lap is, but when when you run a race, um, the, you know, ready, set, go, and a gun goes off, and people are racing around the uh, the track, and then before the final lap, mm-hmm. the, a gun goes off again, and that's your gun lap, and that's your last lap. And, uh, and so I, I just read this and, and it's, it's really kind of hit me because in a way I'm in that final lap. And, and it's, so it's really made me think about what, how do I spend my time and, and what can I do so that uh, when I am that David, hopefully at a hundred that I can look back and, uh, and, and also feel like that final lap was maybe my best one. Mm-hmm. And I think that a lot of times we have this misperception of what that final lap should look like, that it should look like playing a lot of rounds of golf, nothing against golf. I love golf. Um, but I think that what's one of the tragedies in our society is that sometimes it's those individuals who have the financial wherewithal, who have the time and who have the experiences, a lifetime of experiences to be able to do so much. And, and many people do, but there are a lot of people that don't. And, mm-hmm. uh, and, and sometimes it's because I don't think we value uh, some of our older citizens like we should, that we don't recognize the wisdom and the experience and the knowledge that they have to be able to do uh, tremendous things in our world. And so, that would be my hope is that this, uh, this final lap of mine would be one that uh, when I was 100, I would look back and say, wow, that was, that, was, uh, that was not one where you crawled across the finish line, but that you, uh, that you sprinted. Absolutely. And I'm looking forward to the picture of you sprinting across the finish line as the 100-year-old. So I wish you the very best in every aspect of life, good health, because the world needs you to make an impact. So this was a great conversation. Is there anything else you want to share with our listeners that we haven't talked about? You know, just something real quick with the organization that I'm with right now, Shelters to Shutters, like I mentioned, we're in five cities across the country. If anybody, you know, uh, wants to learn more about it, our, our uh, website is shelterstoshutters.org. And we're looking to go into cities. And I'm always mindful of the quote from, um, I believe it was Margaret Mead, never underestimate the, the power that a small group of people can, can have to change the world. In fact, it's the only thing that ever has. And so as I think about the organizations that I've been with over the years and how it got started, how the first Make-A-Wish chapter in a city got started, how the first Habitat affiliate got started, how a food bank got started, so often it was one individual. It was one individual that had a passion for a mission who said, I think I could do something here. And so if there's anybody listening today that uh, cares about the issue of homelessness and would want to be part of the solution, reach out. I'd I'd love to be able to have that conversation. Love that. 
and thanks for sharing the power of one. So David, you have answered every question I've asked. It's only fair. Is there anything you want to ask me? You know, uh, tell me what uh, what's coming up in terms of some people that you're excited about uh, in terms of your, your next interviews. Yeah. So to me, it's like every conversation is totally unique. And the whole podcast is all about, you know, talking to people from different walks of life. And one of the conversations that's coming up in the next couple of weeks is with Orion Collins. Orion Collins is the former wife of singer Phil Collins. Oh, wow. And, you know, to me, it was a humbling experience when I first got a chance to meet her and I Googled, I realized the only pictures I found there was about her and her new husband with some gunmen have taken over Phil Collins's villa. Okay. And somehow in a world of social media, what we see, we believe. And I was fortunate to have a conversation with her where on a Zoom call, we were in a breakout room and we were the only two people. And what I realized was she doesn't care about social media. She doesn't waste time correcting social media. This is a person when she was 48 years old was doing a regular martial arts demo when she got kicked on the temple. And a few days later after surgery, she was paralyzed from neck down. Wow. She didn't give up. Over two years, she got herself back to a position where she climbed the highest or the second highest mountain in Switzerland. And what was brilliant was during this whole journey of healing, she wasn't thinking of herself. She was thinking about how to channelize her passion to create the Never Give Up Foundation so she can in turn inspire others mentally and through help as she can to never give up. And two big things I learned is one, in a world as you talked about divided many a time, it is our ignorance that divides us and I'm talking about me. Just let pausing a little bit to get to know the person is so important because if I didn't get a chance to know her, I would have missed out on an incredibly inspiring human beings, incredibly inspiring journey. So I'm very fortunate to be part of that. That's great. I'll look forward to that one. So David, again, thank you for taking time, my friend. This was truly inspiring. And I'll reach out to you personally, asking you what can I do to help Shelters to Shutters. So it would be an honor myself. So thank you very much. Very good. And thank you for having me. This has been very enjoyable. You've been listening to Secrets to Win Big with Arjun Sen, founder and CEO of Zen Mango, top brand growth driver and a former Fortune 500 executive who has been called one of the most marketing intelligent minds in the business. To learn more, visit www.zenmango.com. Share this podcast with your friends and subscribe wherever you like to listen to podcasts. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.